It's good to be with you this morning as we get ready to open and continue our worship and open God's Word. Little ones are going downstairs. We're glad that uh, you brought them. You can keep them with you too if you want. Perfectly fine. And uh, if you want to continue to worship and giving, we just do that through online giving or we do it in the secure box in the back. Turn with me, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're in a new study. We've been in it for now a couple of months, and so it's been a blessing to us so far. I think that you will enjoy our time. We are working our way through the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And so it'll be a blessing as we continue to look, as we saw early on in our study. Paul wrote this to Timothy, he said in chapter 3, so that people may know how to conduct themselves in the household of God. That sounds like the right thing to read in church, doesn't it? So let's do that. It is, um, let me encourage you, if you would, um, as it is our habit, to study the Word of God each day, combining that with prayer. We provide a number of ways that you can do that out in the foyer. You can take a trifold home that keep you, uh, gets you through the Word of God in a year. Use version. that's my encouragement to you. version has a number of plans that will help you take, take you through the Word of God Will and I were talking about a passage earlier this summer. It speaks to this issue. It's out of Luke chapter 10, verse 38. And it's, um, it's a passage I think that you'll see uh, how important it is. Maybe you've read it through and didn't understand uh, what, what uh, the Lord was saying. But he's traveling with his disciples, and, and he's, it says that they were traveling along, and he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word, verse 40, but Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone and tell her to help me? But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. And we won't break the passage down as, it, as we really could, but I just want to say a couple of things I think you can pull out of there that are pertinent to what we just said about being in the Word. There are a lot of things that take time out of each day, and you could probably, in your mind, recount some of those things week to week uh, that take priority in your life, and those things, unless they're prohibited by the Word of God, are not sinful, and they're good, and most of them uh, need to be done, and they are part of your life, and the Lord says to take care of them and your family and your job and be responsible and all those things. But I think you notice in the passage there was something that was imperative there that needed to happen. And I think as we look at the passage, our first, our first blush at the passage is we kind of feel badly for Martha and kind of we're on her side. Yeah, why don't you get up and help me, right? I mean, I think as we read through the passage, we think, yeah, why is, why is Mary sitting and Martha's up working and doing all the work? But Jesus gives the emphasis precisely the opposite of that, doesn't he? What did Mary choose? Mary chose the good part. That's how the Lord talks about it. The good part. Listening at Jesus' feet. And so the question is, how can we choose the good part each day and each week and, and make sure we get that in in the middle of the very important things we have to do? That's, that's the trick, isn't it? Is to establish that pattern that you're in the Word each day so that you can be formed by the Word, the Holy Standard is held up in front of you, you can praise the Lord where you need to praise Him. You can be corrected where you need to be corrected. What does the Word say? What, it's, what does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? So very, very important, I think, as we think about this new year, as we think about a new school year, uh, you're going to get busy, a lot of things on you, and uh, many of our professors in here, new classes, things that uh, they haven't done before, so a lot of pressure. But what we don't want to ignore is the best part, which is the time in the Word. So make sure you take some time to do that. Take some time to be in the Word in prayer, 
be in church, be in small groups where you're choosing the best part so that you can grow as the Lord would have you grow. All right? Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 now. We're going to read. Uh, as our habit. It's been a while since we've read through this first chapter, so we're going to do that right now. You can just follow along with me if you would. We're going to pick up in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, and I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on it, emphasis, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Verse 5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Verse 6, for some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Verse 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Verse 9, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, verse 10, and immoral men, and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus, verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Verse 17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This commandment I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, but that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Verse 20, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, so they'll be taught not to blaspheme. Thank you for reading along with me. As you might imagine, we're going to be in the Word each time you're together with us, verse by verse, comparing Scripture with Scripture, setting the correct context, and so it'll be encouraging to me. Bring your Bible, you'll find that it's important. Over the last course of the last several weeks, we've worked our way through this chapter, and we set some groundwork for the introduction to this letter, helped us understand really some of the things going on in Ephesus at the time that Timothy and Paul are there, and some of the things going on in the lives of both Timothy and Paul themselves. And, and the stewardship, we looked at that, that the church has to faithfully teach sound doctrine in order to produce, verse 5, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so there's a lot of things that went into that, and if you missed any of that, you can catch that on Spotify or on YouTube, but I won't go back over it, but obviously uh, there are some problems here in Ephesus if Paul is spending all of his time, particularly early in the letter, talking about doctrine and talking about those who teach it falsely. And so as we work our way through this first half of this chapter, we've been able to identify some important principles 
that just kind of flow out of the passage that help us accomplish these tasks. And, and to identify the things that shouldn't be going on, and in verse 6, uh, he, we see some of that. This is where we left off last week. We see some of the things that shouldn't be going on. Look at verse 6, if you would, in your copy of God's Word. For some men, he says, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertion. And this, um, this word straying we saw last time is a word that's only used in the pastoral epistles. It's the word for missing the mark or missing the target. If you're a bow hunter, you understand. If you're, if you're a sportsman, you understand these things. Missing the bullseye, missing the place you're supposed to be. And what are these things? Well, the goals of sound teaching, which we just saw. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. They moved away from teaching sound doctrine, and then they moved into some other things, and so those things were left off. So not only did they substitute speculation for God's instruction, but they've also wandered away from a concern for a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And in the vacuum of created by missing the mark, faithfully teaching through the Word of God so that you can understand what sound doctrine is, something always happens. And it's, it's called having turned aside, eris passive indicative, metayologia. It's an important word, which again, they turn themselves aside to something else. So we're talking about false doctrine, we're talking about false teachers. And what we can understand then very early on is if you're not following through the Word of God and teaching through it, what ends up happening is you turn aside to other things. Again, a very broad statement, but that makes a very large application. You've missed the mark, and then something else is happening, and it's turning themselves aside. And that was our eighth, as we looked at uh, our principles, that was our eighth principle of discernment. If you're a note taker, you can find that on the back of your bulletin right now. And anything that's underlined up there is a takeaway for you to help you kind of put together this passage in your own mind. But this, this is a willful act of excluding sound doctrine. It's also going to include, as we just saw, another willful act, and it's turning aside to useless words. It's the way uh, a lot of what we see on TV and some that we've experienced, guys spend their time in the pulpit with a lot of useless words, a lot of things they want to say to people that have nothing to do with sound doctrine, and they don't stick with the Word of God. So they're just kind of freelancing it. And, and we saw early in the passage that the Lord has said, this is not to go on. And it certainly seems to be the pattern of today, a, a very important point, that there's this intentionality this, to the manipulation of the Word. It's not by accident. It's intentional. And they always turn themselves to it. And people seek after it too. 2 Timothy 4.3, which we'll see uh, in a few months. For, for the time will come, Paul says, when they, that's people who attend church, those who come to the fellowship, will not endure sound doctrine. And we looked at the goal of sound doctrine, didn't we? Love from a pure heart, uh, sound uh, conscience and a sincere faith. So they're not going to endure that. And people don't want that. What do they want? What, they want to have their ears tickled, see? So it's not just those people who are teaching false doctrine. It's just plenty of people who would like to hear it. They'd like to feel good when they go to church. They want somebody to tickle their ears. That's what that means. They want to hear about sound doctrine. They don't want to hear about repentance. They don't want to hear about those kinds of things. Sound teaching, working your way through the Word of God, understanding what it means, uh, what it says, what it means by what it says. That's what we're supposed to be applying ourselves to, and that's how we avoid shame by rightly dividing the word of truth, but people want to have their ears tickled, so they're moved to somebody who will do it, and there's plenty of them who are out there who will do it. And it says they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They want to feel good, they'll find somebody who helps them feel good. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So again, you're going to turn your ears away from truth and then willfully turn yourself away to myths. So a very important point. 
and, and turning themselves away. These are the people who attend church, not lead the church, but as long as there are other options, people will choose them. Because the vacuum of sound teaching doesn't stay empty very long. Look at verse 7. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertion. And here we saw last time, the law has to do with the Mosaic law. And we saw that they were just kind of picking and choosing. We can, I gave you some verses to help you understand that from some other par- portions of the New Testament. Just kind of picking and choosing what they, wanted to, what they wanted to teach. And so they want to be teachers, Paul says. But it isn't so because they want to know the law and teach it soundly. It's, it isn't that they want to know God. It isn't that they care for people or producing love from a pure heart or a well-informed conscience or a genuine faith. Now, what they want is they want the prestige of being recognized as a teacher. And you can see that a lot in, in a lot of the false church, uh, churches. By the way, they walk around and do all kinds of stuff to make themselves appear like a rock star. That's kind of how I try to describe it. They dress like that and they look like that and they try to make that happen. They want to be recognized. Uh, they want the prestige and the uh, prominence and the stuff that goes with all of that. And, but, and what they're really after is just recognition. They want somebody to recognize them. And we looked at that warning last time from James chapter 3, verse 1. A very dire warning, I think. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. So among the other things that that implies, which is you just can't freelance whatever you want to do up here and do and teach whatever you want to teach because there's sound doctrine you have to follow through. The idea is, is the one who really understands the whole job of a teacher understands that there are many ways that his ministry is going to be evaluated. And that should strike terror in the heart of those who aspire to the office. There are certain things, the stewardship that we looked at before, that are required to happen which will mean that those who lead will have to lead with the Word of God and not their own words. If you remember in 1 Corinthians 2, when we studied this, uh, Paul was, was talking about this kind of thing. In verse 1, he says, When I came to you, brethren, as he's introducing himself to the church, he said, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. He wasn't trying to impress them with how he could speak. He wasn't trying to make them think he was a great teacher. He wasn't trying to come across as some kind of theologian, so people would uh, revere him in a certain way. When I proclaim to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Doesn't exactly sound like the resume of the average megachurch pastor. Verse 4, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words and wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Very important passage, one that I think uh, we miss a lot. He doesn't want our, he said, I don't want your faith to rest in the wisdom of men. When I get all done teaching, Paul says, I don't want you to think of me at all. I want you to think about the Lord. I want you to think about Christ. I want you to think about the things that you learned and apply them. I don't want me to, include, uh, to corrupt and, and, and stick itself into your thought process. It's not a place, the, the pulpit, Paul says, is not a place for proud people. And he led by example. It's not a place to entertain. It's not a place to spice things up, if you will, or to manipulate things. He says combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. 
It's going to have to be more than the simplistic dribble that passes for preaching from guys who want to be known or want to be funny or charismatic or a good orator or a powerful speaker. You know, the thing that we say a lot here, and this is what I pray for myself and those who teach here at Bereans all the time, is that they will be filled with the Spirit, with the gifts of the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Otherwise, nothing of any substance is going to go on. If you're not filled with the Spirit, and that means you've spent time, as, we, as Jason read earlier in Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, richly with all wisdom. If you're not spending time in the Word of God before you start whatever ministry it is, you're going to have nothing to offer because the Spirit has not filled you. You see, it's not, it's not some kind of separate kind of the Holy Spirit coming over you. It's the idea that you are filled with the, Holy, you're filled with the Spirit because the Word of God dwells in you richly. And then... Out of that comes the gifting of the Spirit, however He's gifted you to teach or whatever it is, evangelize, inside and done inside the fruit of the Spirit. That's where the power is. So that you're not thinking about the individual, you're thinking about what the Word of God said and how great He is. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus is being tempted, and you, you know this passage, and He's been tempted with many things, and I think it's funny that, that um, if, it was, if it wasn't so sad, it would be funny that false teachers embrace as normative for Christians. He's being tempted and turning them down. This is what many of the false teachers today want you to embrace. The, the desire of the flesh, the envy of the eyes, the arrogant pride of position. And how did Jesus counter these things? He says in verse 4, It's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So is it all important? Yes. Is it important to teach through books of the Bible so you catch all the hard parts too? the parts that will undermine your own arrogance, the parts that will undermine your own pride, the parts that will uh, make you sit up and take notice of your teaching that perhaps there's a pretty high standard you might want to make sure you hit. And so, again, Jesus like, it's all important. So let's make sure we dwell on it. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, another really clear illustration because the Bible explains the Bible. The appetites of many who taught in the church in the first century, and they're even more numerous now, Paul says of them in, in Philippians 3.18, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And that was our ninth principle, discernment from the negative side. The useless words that we saw in verse 6 have as the underlying objective self and the world. Paul just calls it right out there in Philippians, doesn't he? Their, what's their motivation? Their God is their appetite. They want things that satisfy them. And they glory in stuff that they should be ashamed of, and they set their mind on earthly things. So it's not love from a pure heart. It's self-love. It's not a good conscience. They're not teaching that will, somehow that will produce a good conscience because they're not teaching the Word of God. Their conscience has been seared. It's not a sincere faith. These are all the basics, the, the, uh, the stewardship that those who lead the church and those who are in the church are supposed to accomplish. It's an unredeemed, sophisticated, materialistic, humanistic worldview promoting self. That's what goes on in the name of preaching a lot. And so Paul just calls it right out. It was there in the first century. It's, it's been through the church since the first century. And we can see throughout the New Testament, and we can still uh, point it out pretty easily today. Characteristic, characteristic bottom line of a goal of false teachers is to master themselves, people, and money for their own gain along with prestige. That's, those are underlying goals 
of false teachers. The motives are wrong, and of course their teaching brings the opposite of love for God and love for fellow men because it's all built on love for self and how to take care of yourself and feel good about yourself and all of those kinds of things. But if you're going to serve the church as a steward, you're responding to the call of God. And that by itself is a humbling situation. And we've looked at a number of those things throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament about God's call. And if you think about the examples we just had in the Scripture, to just reject sound teaching is a rebellious act by men and women who know neither of those things. They're just in the office for their own preeminence. And the guys Timothy is having to deal with are just on an ego trip. They aren't people who are humbly compelled to preach and rely solely on the Word of God. They've got their own agenda, and it's pride seeking prestige. But they dress it up, and if you go, you're going to have a hard time. It, it takes a lot, of, um, a lot of undiscerning Christians captive. They're going to dress it up with a lot of modern Christianity types of phrases which catch undiscerning believers unaware, and these things are very attractive to marginal Christianity, and they appeal to the flesh. So you have to be aware of that. And this is the hard part of discerning false teaching and discerning false teachers. You have to be aware of what they're appealing to and what the bulk of the sermons are from, time, from, from uh, Sunday to Sunday. Now look at verse 8, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 1. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law was not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or murderers and immoral men and homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Let's stop right there. Now, knowing Paul and what he's just got through saying about false teachers and knowing false teachers, this response is what we would expect. The problem is in the church there in Ephesus, they're just picking and choosing out of the Old Testament what they'd like to tell people to do how to be spiritual, how to have the secret knowledge you can find in these passages, those kinds of things. Same thing is happening, it happens today, and pick and choose through with the Old and New Testament. So Paul starts this way, in verse 8 he says, but we know, he says, that the law is good. That is to say, when you say we know, that it's common understanding, Paul says, although not common perhaps in Ephesus because of the way the teachers have been teaching, Paul says it's common understanding that the law is good. In other words, it's beneficial if it's used in the manner that God intended for it to be used. And he's going to show us this. He, he, as we can see, he's going to apply the correct understanding to the disaster of the teaching that is that of the false teachers. They've messed it up. He's going to come back and say, okay, they want to be teachers of the law. They don't understand any of that. And so the danger is, and this is some of the hard part of having discernment, to realize something is false and then be able to correct it. Paul wants to defend the law because the tragedy in the church is that the false teacher's mouth is, has the word in it, but it's the word corrupted and adulterated. And that was our tenth principle as we looked at the difficulty of dealing with bad doctrine. Unless you're careful, when you throw away fault, the false teacher, you can wind up having people lose confidence in the word that he spoke. And just a few examples, I don't think it's really hard to see that. Because um, you come and teach the, the correct way, or the way you're supposed to teach, the way it's supposed to get represented, the problem is, is that you begin to teach a passage that's been messed up for so long, you just kind of get lumped in with all the nonsense that's come along in the name of preaching. You know, he says, we know that the law is good. And by condemning the one who wants to be a teacher of the law and how they taught it, we're not condemning the law itself. 
And there's tons of examples of that kind of bad teaching as it relates to future things and money. It's been misused constantly. And people are so jaded from hearing this uh, self-driven teaching on money, somehow to enrich the individual or that God's going to enrich you or something, that he owes you some certain thing. And then the work of the Holy Spirit, all this kind of, it's all been messed up. And so you come along and the church is very jaded and worn out because these passages tend to be the ones that false teachers hammer on the most. And the tendency is to just throw the whole thing out because there must not be a correct way to teach it correctly. It must be too hard to understand. So we'll just toss the whole thing out. And the guy who comes along and then wants to teach it correctly, it almost seems like he has to apologize for teaching it. And, and as we said, it can just get lumped in with all the nonsense that comes along in the name of teaching, but isn't really true teaching. And so Paul says, we know the law is good. And he says this, if one uses it lawfully. So the law has a right use. It has a right place, but they're not using it correctly. They're picking and choosing and putting stuff together as a means of spirituality, even as a means of salvation. And of course, they set themselves up as a harbinger in the standard of what this is supposed to mean because they have the secret knowledge. You guys have heard this now. It's even very popular today. There's secret knowledge you can pull out of the Old Testament that's keys to a richer life and all of that stuff. Paul says that's all nonsense. It's using the, the law incorrectly. And attaining spirituality by outward means is always a very attractive thing to moral people, to legalistic people. They don't teach about grace unless it's misused. You know, you can continue to sin and God will forgive you. They don't teach about hell. You don't have to deny yourself. You don't have to live a life of repentance. You're not going to hear brokenness in, in, a, in the sermons from false teachers. It's all God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be happy. God wants, has a great plan for you. God has all these wonderful things in store for you. You know, you just claim these kinds of things and they become yours because, you're because of your status as a, as, one, as a child of God. And there's this richer life and this bigger life and this secret knowledge you can have and you can be more spiritual and you can grow in this way. Paul says that's all nonsense. And in the midst of the darkness of the first century idolatry and immorality, these false teachers should have been using the law to demonstrate their unrighteousness and their deep spiritual need. And that's the point of Paul's statement in verse 8. Look there if you would. We know the law is good, he says, if one uses it lawfully, verse 9, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person. So what is the intent of the law? As we see Paul's illustration. What is it? Well, the law is made to what? Condemn. It's made to condemn, isn't it? That's the reason why the law was given. And it's, made up to, it's, it's given to hold up the holy standard of what God expects. That's the correct use of the law. And look at the next part, verse 8. Those who are lawless and rebellious for the ungodly and sinners. So mark this. Paul says, the law is good, but the law by itself is not good news. The law doesn't hold secrets to a deeper life. The law isn't a means of spirituality. The law alone is bad news. And what the law does is condemn everyone. And in that respect, the law is good. In the respect that the law is from God and it's his standard, it's very good. And that's how Paul says you use it lawfully. For the law to have its proper effect, it has to be used in accordance with its intent. And Paul faces this redefining of the meaning and the intent of the scriptures, this alteration of understanding, which is still the problem today. And all it does is it leads to a de-emphasis on inerrancy and the infallibility of the scriptures, and it's a watered-down version of how salvation occurs and what God expects from people and exactly what the purpose of the believer is on earth because we've mixed up this whole thing. 
Like Ephesus, the church decays from the inside when we're not clear about doctrine. And so Paul says, listen, the law is for lawlessness and rebelliousness, ungodly sinners, and for the holy and the profane. And what does that look like? For those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So let's go through these, and I'm going to go just kind of word by word as we normally do. We're not going to spend a lot of time in each one of these because I don't think that's Paul's intent here to dwell on each of these things as it is in some other of his letters. But here, as we said, he just wants to make sure they know what the intent of the law was so that people don't throw it out with the bad teaching and, and the picking and choosing that's been going on and using the law incorrectly. So we're going to see Paul, and what's going to happen is, and you're going to notice this as we go through, he's just lightly paralleling the Ten Commandments, which just makes sense. I mean, if you're talking about the Mosaic Law, you're going to look at the Ten Commandments first. And so he's just going to lightly parallel those, and so we'll make some references to that. But let's look at the first one, if you would. Look down there in your copy of God's Word. It says that, um, in verse 9, it says, the law is, is uh, not made for a righteous person. It says, but for the lawless, obviously. It's made for the lawless. Regardless of uh, what they, th- they think now and what they think they might know, the law condemns all lawlessness. They're condemned under a sentence. So this is someone, he says, the law is for someone who has no commitment to any law. Someone who has no standard or who would contend that there isn't a standard. Just a general assault then on the Ten Commandments. The law is made for those who would dismiss all of that. Someone who is lawless will also be insubordinate. That's our next one. Look at it. Rebelliousness. If you don't believe there's any standard, what happens? Then you're going to rebel against any you would consider arbitrary set of rules. Have you witnessed to someone who says this? Well, that's just an arbitrary set of rules. That's the set of rules that are made up by men. You're your own God. You're your own standard. You're lawless and rebellious. So whatever standard it is, it's the one you make up for yourself. And you're not going to pay any attention to anything that says it's a, a law that's the standard for everyone. But of course, regardless of what people might think, the law still condemns them, and you still stand condemned. And I want to pause there just for a second. It's a very important word here, rebelliousness. It has a negative uh, alpha particle at the beginning combined with the verb form of hupotasso, anopotactos. And it's, hupotasso is a word we've looked at numerous times. It has to do with coming up under. And it's the word to be subject, to be in subjection to or come up under as a military word. And so it's the negative, won't be subject, will not submit. The law speaks to people who will not submit or won't be subject. We've seen the second part, hupotasso, this word before. It relates to a wife's relationship to her husband to come up under him, the church to the pastor, children to parents, to come up under that authority. Specifically, we see in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, which we'll get to probably in a year or so from now, uh, he uses the word as it relates to approved elders. We're going to see also deacons with this word likewise, but he talks about those who are are able to lead the church. Remember I told you earlier, one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter is some people have to be put out, and, and there has to be some standard for those who lead the church, and we're going to see this. Here's one of the places where it says it. It uses our word, which is why I want to read it to you. Paul is talking to Titus as he talked to Timothy about leaving him in Ephesus. He says to Titus, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, 
not accused of dissipation, which is the word asotia, abandoned morality, shrugged off morality and authority. And then our word, rebellion, won't come up under. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.9, the law condemns those who practice these behaviors. So it shouldn't surprise us that you can't lead a church if your children practice those behaviors, right? That makes sense, doesn't it? If your children won't come up under anybody, if your children are accused of dissipation, throwing off authority, then you can't lead the church. Very clear. And so that was very likely the case in Ephesus and likely in Crete, that they had guys who were leading the church, guys in, that were in leadership that were disqualified from leadership because of how their, how their children uh, acted. And we'll get to that later, but it's an important word as you can see. We see the same word in Ephesus chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is, there's our word, debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So a very, very important word, one that is forbidden. The law is made to address those who have this attitude. It's a common word from Scripture, one defined for us in a number of places, and never with a positive association. The law was given to bring that into condemnation. And just quickly, look at the next one. The next thing the law was given for was to condemn the ungodly. The law is for the, it's another word for it, irreverent, literally the anti-worship, those who don't worship. They don't care at all about God or about what is true of God, and you can see that connects with the first and second uh, commandments, can't you? I mean, you shall have no other God before you. You shall not make any idols you shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain. But here, the law is given for those who are ungodly, it says. For the irrever irreverent. They don't care at all about God. They don't care about what is true of God or about what is right. They're irreverent. It just means without regard for anything that's sacred. The law is made to condemn that. And obviously, if they have no regard for anything holy or right, we see the next thing the law condemns. It condemns sinners. The ungodly then go out. They commit sin. They live without any regard for God's law because they don't have any regard for God and they do whatever they want. And so their life reflects that in the choices that they make. And then the next word is unholy. The law is for those who are unholy. That's our word we saw a moment ago, dissipation, esotia, abandoned morality, shrugged off authority, indifferent to what is right. The law wasn't given as a way to spirituality. The law wasn't given to pick and choose your way to salvation or a deeper knowledge. The law was given to judge, condemn, and punish unholiness. And what goes right along and really is part of dissipation and the fruit, not of the spirit, but of the flesh, is the next thing the law was given for. Look there. Those who are profane. It's to be secular or worldly. It's apparent in language and it's apparent in conduct, of course, in the individual this applies to. Literally, it means to step on or trample what is sacred. So certainly your language can reflect that. Your choices can reflect that. You have a person who's unholy. You'll have a life of trampling on everything that's sacred. We could really summarize that by saying that, uh, that the law was made for people who are lawless, people who are disobedient, people who are irreverent, indifferent to what is right, and secular, and who trample on things that are holy. That's what the law was given to condemn. To show them who they really are. The reason why the law was given was to give a clear picture of the thoughts and intents and every thought and intent of everyone who's ever lived. When you compare your life against the holy standard, you see that you're indeed lawless and disobedient and ungodly and sinful and unholy and profane. And that still works today, beloved, in witnessing. 
It doesn't matter who you bump into, no matter what their, what their worldview may be. When you come to them, you have to give them the gospel and use the scripture. It's only the scripture that divides the soul and spirit joint and marrow, and it's the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So when you come to someone to witness to them, don't say God loves you and have a wonderful plan for your life. First of all, they have people who love them and they don't care about that and they don't want any other plan except theirs. But if you come to them and ask them if they believe in an afterlife or do you think you're a good person and then you start going through the Ten Commandments, well, have you ever lied? Well, most people say yes. Well, have you ever stolen anything? Most people would say yes. Or use the name of the God in vain? Yes. Well, what's that make you? A profane person and a liar and a thief. Are you still good? Well, probably. Well, not according to the Ten Commandments. See, and they'll say, well, that's just an arbitrary list. Well, could be. Um, I don't think it is. I think the Bible is authoritative and, and it is uh, applicable to everyone who's ever lived, given by a God who, who has created everyone and has the right to call them all into question. So if it's true, you're in trouble. You violated those things. And if you violate those things, you're guilty. And if you're guilty, you have to pay the punishment. You see, it still works. Paul says the law used correctly brings everybody into condemnation. It holds up the holy standard of God and says, this is what God expects. Do you reach it? So maybe you came to faith, but nobody did that for you. So I would say, to, I'd say this to you. Do you understand that now? Do you understand that um, you were unholy and sinful and profane and disobedient and you set your life against the holy standard? Do you see that? Is that how you were? Is that your testimony? Because if that's not your testimony, I would, I would say that you might want to go back and see what actually happened when you came to faith. Because the Lord has to save a sinner. And that applies to everyone. We defied God, the duty we had to render to God. A sinner that's attacking the Lord. And that defines every single person who's ever lived. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, remember this, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? They're all under condemnation. The law has brought them under condemnation. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or effeminate or homosexuals or thieves or covetous or drunkards or revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Mark this. And such were some of you. It's not an exhaustive list, he said. But you fall, some of you fall into it. And maybe you fall into other things that I didn't list here. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You see? We can all relate to that, can't we? Some of that list on this list and some of the ones that we're looking at right now, we can relate to those things. And the law made those things clear and what the penalty was. And so then the gospel comes, and it's the good news, see? And now all of a sudden you need good news, don't you? Now God's plan, which is to substitute your wickedness with his righteousness makes sense, doesn't it? Because now you really need it. Now, in the previous list, Paul says that if you use the law correctly, you're going to see the laws dealing with, in general with how men respond to God. That's kind of the, the ones we've seen so far. In this next section, Paul focuses on using the law correctly and how to condemn those who interact with other men, just like the Ten Commandments does as well. And of course, when we're speaking of men here, it includes everyone, men and women. So ladies, you can get off the hook. First stop, and how the law condemns certain things and sets the standard for what's right. For those, he said, who kill their fathers and mothers. That's kind of horrifying, isn't it? Instead of honoring your father and your mother, as the, as the Ten Commandments says, in commandment number five, 
perhaps they murdered them, perhaps that occurred with someone in the congregation. It's, it's impossible to know why Paul said it this way. Normally that's translated strike. The word to kill is stri- strike or literally thresh. It's the word for threshing. But you can see Paul paralleling the second half of the, the Ten Commandments that deal with how men deal with men. It's not a commandment by commandment, but you can see the intent. And that fifth commandment is broadened in, this ne- in the next chapter of Exodus, chapter 21, verse 15, to talk about the fact that even if a person only hits their parents or they're cursed their parents, you're to receive the death penalty. So I think we can get the picture. Just a general disrespect, a general way of abusing parents is um, what the law was given to condemn. Made for people who break the fifth commandment by not honoring their parents. The way from dishonor to murder and everything in between is encompassed in the fifth commandment. And that's the standard God expects. And then the next one the law is made for are murderers. This is one for homicide. Uh, it literally means to murder, which is clear in the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. And then look at uh, verse 10. Immoral men and homosexuals. Then the law is also made for sexual sinners, the general term for any sexual immorality. That's immoral men, the word that we get our word porn, pornography from, pornea. And then, of course, uh, men who lay with men. It's, it's the way the second word's put together. There can be no doubt, uh, no misunderstanding of what he's talking about. And we won't go into that because we have young ones with us. But both are a violation of the seventh commandment of God, which is the commandment that allows no sexual relationship outside the marriage of one man and one woman. And it's very foreign to our, the years of our modern society, isn't it? Because we kind of do whatever we want. And if you're the one who's pointing out that it's wrong, you're the one who actually is wrong. But the law was written to expose those things as vile and sinful, and, and instead of misusing the law and or dumbing it down or being crafty with it, the false teacher should have made sure people understood these things. That's why Paul says the law is good if you use it lawfully. And then the next one is kidnappers. Of course, the Eighth Commandment has to do with stealing, and in light of stealing, he mentions kidnappers because in his day and today, uh, one of the most prominent ways that men showed their depravity was in abducting people. So Paul says, listen, the law is given to condemn that. And as Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 expands on that, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he's found in his possession, he shall surely be put to death. That's how serious God thought it was. Paul says if you're going to use the law lawfully, make sure people understand if they do these kind of things, they're under condemnation. And again, the law holds up a very high standard for those, the next two as well. It says liars and perjurers. Again, it's referring to the commandments, and this is the ninth one. The law was made to condemn to make clear that people who are violating the law of God understand they are. And because it, this isn't just Paul speculating, but the Holy Spirit carrying him along, we can get the idea that behind all of this are things that are characteristic both in the church and perhaps of the false teachers who are leading. Because the, the list isn't just random, is it? The Holy Spirit's carrying Paul along to write a letter to Timothy who is currently at Ephesus. So we can assume then a number of things must be applicable to that church because this is a real letter written to real people. Perhaps the false teachers are like that. Perhaps the people who are there are like that. Jesus, if you remember Matthew 23, 27, says that false teachers on the outside look great, but not so much on the inside. Jesus says false teachers talk it up and look good, but inside's really bad. Probably the same here. Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. Remember, for such men are false apostles, he says, deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So they look the part, they sound the part, but they're deceitful. And how do you know? Because they're not teaching what the Word of God says, they're teaching what they want to say. So it's describing things that are going on with some in the church, which is a very sad state of affairs. And after all of that, 
then the Holy Spirit just brings up this general statement, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So Paul says, the law comes for sinners, and he lists all these things, and then somebody might say, well, I wasn't on any of that list, so I'm good. So Paul just says, listen, and anything else that's contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, any place you're departing from sound teaching, you're still guilty. So Paul started with, the law is good, then, if one uses it lawfully, because mark it, the law is the first part of the gospel. Did you catch that? The law is the first part of the gospel. It's a very important part. The law comes and says you're a sinner, and you need to know that. Because the second part of the gospel is what? There's a Savior. And this is what Paul means in 1 Timothy 1.11. He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now let's close. Paul says the use of the law is part of the gospel. Paul doesn't want them to lose confidence in the word of God. When he refutes the false way of using the law, what's the gospel? Well, the first half is man's a sinner, a sinner so bad he cannot redeem himself. He's using the law lawfully. That's right doctrine for everyone. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Remember that? That's the gospel. Second part of the gospel, the remedy for the dire predicament that everyone who's ever lived finds themselves. This is Paul's intent here, to make sure that the church understands what's going on. The good news, first of all, is bad. Man's a sinner. You're lost without Christ, with unforgiven sin, for which you will be damned forever in eternal hell. That's a very clear statement from the Word of God. You can't escape it. So you can see Paul's problem. The Holy Spirit is carrying him along to address when somebody comes along and obscures this message of sin. That's not any help, see? You don't want to hide the law. But when you turn away from sound doctrine, you turn towards what? Useless words, which end up ignoring the main parts that you make sure you have to, you, some of the main parts you make sure you have to communicate. We don't want to use language. We don't want to say a word, homosexual. We don't want to say adulterer or sin because... People won't come if you talk about that, see? Well, there's a huge problem with that, isn't there? Because that describes everyone who's ever lived. Those sinful practices are condemned in the Old Testament. We understand the law says not to do them. But false teachers don't want to talk about repentance they don't, because that's offensive. They don't want to use those kinds of words about coming and being broken before the Lord and a lifestyle of repentance, see? And that's the intentionality we were talking about, of manipulating the Word of God and making it softer and making it more palatable, see? That's according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. When these guys come, they think they have a better message than the glorious gospel of the blessed God. They have a serious problem, don't they? In understanding who they really are. Paul says this is the first part of the gospel, this gospel of the blessed God. And false teachers come along, they don't teach any of this. That's a problem. And so, very, very important as we come to this last part. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, they're enemies of the cross of Christ, Paul says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and glory is their shame, and set their mind on earthly things. See, that's the issue. That we're missing out on these kinds of things which were very, very important as part of 
the teaching that should have been going on in Ephesus. And so now Timothy is there, and he is having to deal with guys who are already in leadership. They've already corrupted the teaching. People are confused about what it means to be born again. They're confused about what it means to be condemned. And so the, the message is not going on, and Paul's having to unravel this whole thing without throwing all of it away. So it's an important point, I think, as we think about um, maybe our own experience, maybe things that we have heard, maybe things we've subjected ourselves to, what we listen to perhaps. It's very, very important that we be discerning church, and I think that's the whole point Paul is making sure Timothy understands as he works his way through all of this, that the church comes out and says, okay, now we understand why the law was given. Now we understand the position we're actually in. And now we understand the good news. It makes sense now, doesn't it? If you're condemned, if the things that you do have condemned you and you're under a curse and your punishment stands waiting, then the good news is good news indeed. And I would just say to you, beloved, as you, as you think about it, and though it's not the, necessarily the intent of Paul's passage here, although I think, you could make, uh, I think you could make a point here, I think as you think about perhaps uh, carrying out the Great Commission, which is part of our purpose here, and making sure the gospel goes out, that you might want to think about how you approach that. And I'm not going to ask you to put up your hands, but I would just say this, you know, how many people in the last, you, have you given the gospel to in the last week, or month, or year, or more than a year, that would include the bad news and the good news? And have you asked for opportunities to do that? Because beloved, we're surrounded by unredeemed people who have heard false teaching and remain in their sin, although they would think they're perhaps a, a believer, or they would call themselves a Christian but haven't understood repentance is key because they haven't understood they're actually sinful. They think they're pretty good. So what I would encourage you, as you ask the Lord for opportunities to witness, make sure that's what you're focusing on. Don't focus on other stuff, okay? Don't take in oh, what's going to happen in the future. Don't take in, you know, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Don't start there, okay? Start with all sincerity and with all humility, knowing how and praying that you might answer each one correctly. Their actual position. Work your way to that. And then give the good news and see perhaps how that might work. Okay? Let's bow. We're going to be dismissed in prayer. We're going to have a few announcements. We'll, we'll be uh, uh, departing. Lord, thank you today for the opportunity to uh, be in your word today. So grateful to you for giving it to us, for making it so clear. And, and as we see this letter to Timothy, to this church in Ephesus, so applicable for today. So many examples we can make of things that go on on a regular basis in churches around the country and around the world. They would fly right into this condemnation that Paul makes. And Father, I pray that uh, you'll help us understand that and be able to apply it. We'll have discernment as we hear what we hear. Be able to help others understand uh, where some of this is wrong and how it can be corrected. And Father... It, just as importantly, I pray that we'll understand, as Paul uh, says, as we use the law correctly, as Paul's under the new covenant, as he understands the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, he still says the law is supposed to be used correctly, and the law is to bring, bring condemnation to those who practice sinfulness. So I pray, Lord, we'll, we'll get that straight as we witness. And most of all, that we'll, we'll take opportunity to make sure we share the gospel. It is the good news. And it's the power of salvation to all who believe. And so, Lord, help us to be given to that as we are reminded how important it is. And I would be 
remiss not to take a, an opportunity to invite you to repent and receive the forgiveness Christ offers from his death and resurrection. If you've not heard the gospel before, if you haven't understood that you're a sinner condemned, if you haven't repented of your sins, then beloved, I would say that you're still in your sin. You can go to church all you want. You can uh, put on uh, the, the right mask. You can make sure everybody knows uh, that you are a believer and, and you can try to convince everybody. But when it comes right down to it, if you've not repented and come by faith and received forgiveness of your sin, which was an offense to God, and you were under a curse and waiting for your punishment, then you haven't come to faith. Today you could, though, right where you sit and you already know what to say. You repent of your sin. You've offended God and his law. You've been rebellious. You shrugged off authority. And even now, pretending to be in church and doing the thing that you're doing, still offensive to God because you haven't come in humility. And so today can be the day. Ask for his forgiveness, which he very much desires to give you. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And all have sinned and fallen under the condemnation. All are at the same starting point. And the wages of that sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. We are a joy to rejoice with you if you prayed that prayer today. If you'd like to know more about it, we'd love to talk to you further. Before you go, just right on the back of that chair. Just scan that and communicate with us how we can pray for you, how we can help you, or let us know that you've come to faith. It'd be our great joy. Father, we know that um, the weeks coming up are going to be busy, and we pray for those who are starting school this next week who are uh, taking on big projects, teaching hard things, starting new things. Father, I pray that you'll give us grace, help us to rely on you, help us not to put away the most important parts of our morning or our evening where we can draw strength and understanding and grow. Uh, in the middle of that, Lord, I pray that you'll bless the efforts, that you'll encourage and equip, that you might use uh, these individuals later for your own glory in the places that you're going to put them. And Lord, we thank you today for the fact that you answer our prayer, that you're quick to hear. You know what we need. You tell us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. So, Father, help us to do that and then trust you. And we give you praise and glory and all God's people said.